Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony Caldellis, your host. My ears perk up whenever I hear that we should or should not be doing something uh, because, because Byzantium, because Byzantium said so. Uh, in general, I'm skeptical of the idea that the past, especially the deep past, can set rules for us today. I think at best it can advise um, and inform uh, but that we are required to make our, our decisions, especially our moral decisions, based on our principles today and what we know. I remember a case uh, decades ago, um, which was a controversy in Greece regarding the construction and authorization of mosques in Athens. And there was considerable opposition to this from some quarters. Um, and I remember reading in the newspaper articles by you know, esteemed intellectuals and even members of the church, I believe, that we, we can't do that in Greece because, because Byzantium, because we have to stay true to our Orthodox and Byzantine tradition. Uh, now, at that point, I, <laughs> I was uh, a bit annoyed that Byzantium was being used that way. I, I reached out to some of my professional colleagues who had access to the Greek press and tried to convince them to write counter-articles, at least to that specific point about whether Byzantium authorizes, you know, blocking the construction of mosques um, in the capital of a predominantly Christian country. Um, and you know, if you want to block something in Greece bureaucratically, it's fairly easy to do. In fact, I believe this issue is still ongoing in various ways. And I was annoyed at this because, in fact, there were mosques in Byzantine Constantinople. Uh, there's no doubt about it. They're very well documented. Uh, they were in operation for centuries. There might have been uh, more than one or two sometimes. Uh, they were known to the inhabitants of the city. Uh, they were not attacked. Now, if you want to generally argue that Byzantine civilization is not <laughs> very welcoming to Islam, then fine. I mean, that's fair enough. Uh, but you can't use it to justify specific policies in this way. The emperors of Byzantium were willing to accommodate mosques in Constantinople for the use of whatever Muslim community lived there or was passing through. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, we also know that uh, Muslims were invited to um, dinners at the palace, state dinners, uh, where pork was not served uh, out of sensitivity uh, to their religious needs. Uh, these visitors were sometimes dignitaries, sometimes envoys, sometimes even prisoners of war who were invited to the emperor's table for some reason. Uh, in other words, uh, merely citing a civilization in general to justify a specific policy I think doesn't work. Uh, we have to dig into the specifics um, and uh, even if we find uh, a kind of validation of the kinds of policies that we want to implement uh, in Byzantium, we still need to look at the reasons for those policies then um, and the moral framework uh, that informed them. And uh, what I think we will often find is that the, sp the, the cultural context in which those uh, rules or policies were enacted in Byzantium was so significantly different from our own that we can't very easily make the transference, right? Like, we, we can't say, well, ah, this, this rule survives from Byzantine times, therefore it's still valid and we can still use it. My guest today is Stephen Morris, um, who has written a uh, provocative and uh, very informative and very well-researched book um, on... Byzantine Christianity and Homosexuality. That's the subtitle. The title is When Brothers Dwell in Unity, um, where he delves into uh, many of the, of the specific contexts that created the uh, either disapproval or prohibition of male homosexuality in Byzantium. And what he finds is that those contexts, be it monastic, ecclesiastical, uh, state, the civil law, were very different from each other, had just very different assumptions uh, when they were approaching the topic of homosexuality and uh, took very different um, actions 
almost none of which really correspond with or can mesh very well with a modern uh, social, either our social values or our legal framework. The book argues that in a world with different social values and a different understanding of sexual identity, such as our own, that it is possible for the Orthodox Church to draw on its traditions in order to accommodate uh, same-sex marriage, um, and he proposes specifically um, a, a right of brother-making that was used at various times in Byzantium. This was a way of establishing a spiritual a brotherhood between two men, and that this could very easily be used as a template um, for the recognition um, of same-sex unions today. I mentioned that the uh, book is pr primarily about male homosexuality. Um, as, you, as you'll see, the, the categories that the Byzantines used in order to discuss uh, sexual practices and sexual activities differ significantly from our own. Um, and I don't think that they would have recognized the category of homosexuality uh, encompassing both male and female. Um, because I think they would have viewed each of those things differently according to different uh, ways of classifying people and their behaviors. Uh, as a lesbian myself, I hope soon to have a, uh, another episode discussing the female side of the picture, uh, though it's significantly less researched, um, but I, uh, I hope to get to it. Um, I should add that um, Stephen Morris um, was for many years, I think two decades, a priest in the um, Orthodox Church in the United States, um, and many of his uh, his thinking on that on this topic has been informed by his experience uh, in the ministry. Here then is my conversation with Stephen Morse. Hello, Stephen, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, so nice to see you to meet, to meet your your listeners. So, uh, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Just say a little bit about your background and what led you to write this book. Uh, I'm Stephen Morris. I grew up in Seattle. I was a student at Yale where I met John Boswell. I became a priest in the Orthodox Church in the United States and served for many years. I was the Orthodox chaplain at Columbia University and started a parish on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Um, when Boswell's book came out in 94, Four in Europe, 96 in the United States, about same-sex marriage in pre-modern Europe, I realized that, you know, I, I had known him and that he was a very nice guy, but he was a Western medievalist and really not that familiar with Byzantium. And it was ironic that he wrote a book that was so dependent on Byzantine liturgical manuscripts. So even as I read it, I thought I need... So I, Someone who speaks Byzantine needs to help him with the second edition, but then I realized it would be better if I just wrote that book myself, and that resulted in When Brothers Dwell in Unity. Yeah, I like that expression, someone who speaks Byzantine. Uh, <laughs> I should use that. Um, yeah, so, okay, in the book you mentioned some of the experiences that you had in the church uh, uh, regarding issues of sexuality. Can, do you want to say something about those and how they led to the book? Uh, I was uh, asked my first parish. I was asked to to go in and clean up uh, a parish that had become notorious as a place for um, gay men to congregate, and it was um, it was difficult um, uh, because I had not I was not out yet to myself, let alone to the world, and um, yet I had to. Um, tell all these men that um, they had to stick to the rules, uh, and even though I myself did not really quite understand the rules yet at that point. Um, that's, I realized that was a large part of the problem, that people often say, the canons say, and they've never read the canons. And in seminary, even the, the, the pastoral theology class that was supposed to deal with LGBT. It was one session of one course that was supposed to deal with LGBT issues. And the professor handed it over to a student to do a presentation who basically just quoted canons and thought that was sufficient and that uh, it would be enough to simply quote canons at people and that that would change behavior. There was really very, 
um, very little understanding uh, about LGBT life. And even at that time, it was beginning to be the liberal position among some of the faculty that um, same-sex orientation was a lot like alcoholism or kleptomania, that it was something you were born with but had to be struggled against and fought, um, and, and that no good could come of it in the end uh, to, to give into it. So it was, um, it was a very difficult uh, position in, in, the, in the church. Yes, I can imagine, especially when the rules are read in, in the way in which you describe, without any of their background or context. Um, and I take it that your book is an attempt to explore the background of those rules um, in order to yes. understand better where they're coming from and to interpret them in, you know, more in, in a way that's more sensitive both to their own original context, but also the different ways in which they might be relevant today. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Sometimes so, when, we, when people quote the candidate and say, well, there's a penance of 15 or 20 years attached to uh, same-sex intercourse, uh, uh, that sounds very draconian to modern ears, but when you put it into a context of what other penances were for other behavior, that's really a slap on the wrist, that th these, these behaviors really taken as not very, you know, not very consequential, not very serious when you put them into the larger context. Yeah, so, so I take it that you have, you know, over the course of your, your, your career and intellectual life, you've you struggled with people who take the canons as sort of absolute rules, like this is an absolute prohibition. There's no, you know, ifs and buts about it, and um, and they and they use that to take a, a sort of uncompromising stance um, on issues of homosexuality. Um, and so your book, you know, explores some of the background of these rules and where they come from and puts them into context. So let, let's talk a little bit about this, especially the the issue of change. Um, that is that the church has changed its position on a great many issues of you know moral consequence. Um, yes. And you, oh, by the way, do, do you know the <laughs> do you know the joke? Uh, um, how many Orthodox priests does it take to change a light bulb? No. How many Orthodox priests does it take to change a light bulb? Change what change? <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Um, nevertheless, nevertheless, um, even when we put a new light bulb in, it's not change. <laughs> yes. We never admit that any it changes all the time, but we never admit that it changes. Yes, it, it's the actually, I think I knew a church um, in Greece where they claimed that the light bulb outside had was like running for like 80 years. <laughs> Some, it was a miraculous light bulb. A Thomas Edison original. Yes. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so you, you do mention some issues um, of you know, moral consequence on which the church has changed, such as, for example, charging interest for loans. Yes, um, yes. The, the church was very adamant against charging interest for centuries. So even in, the, in the, the mid to late Middle Ages, people, uh, bankers who charged interest were to be denied funerals. They were, there were no panikitas or memorial services allowed. They were not to be commemorated in any way, shape, or form in the prayers for the dead. They were not to be invited to, to dinner parties or to socialize with uh, faithful Orthodox. They could not receive communion. They were um, what Westerners might call the great excommunication, totally shunned. Um, yeah, you also yet, mention, you, you mentioned prohibitions on baptized people holding political office because of the kinds of things that politicians either yes. do or have to do. Yes, Tertullian, I think, had a beautiful meditation um, on what would have, how the world would change if the emperor were to become a Christian. And it's, he, it's, although we may quibble with some of his ecclesiology, he had a very uh, good grasp of the ways that the Roman Empire would have to shift uh, if the emperor became a baptized Christian. But then in the end, he, he said, but of course, none of this will ever happen because if Caesar were to be baptized, he would have to renounce being Caesar. Wow. Yes. I, and on the flip side, um, the Emperor Julian uh, refused to appoint Christians to high political office precisely because they were forbidden, he claimed, from doing things like carrying out executions and, 
and things like right. that. And so yes. it, yeah, the opposites meet here. The Julian and Tertullian kind of agree on, on this. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, what really finally happened is that, well, that emperors were typically baptized on their deathbed. They would be catechumens for their entire life so that they could do political things. Uh, and then they would be baptized uh, as they were dying. But the Theodosius I in 480 survived his baptism. And that had to wrestle. He didn't want to renounce the throne, so he had to wrestle with what yes. does it now mean to be a baptized person on the throne? Yeah, Theodosius had a. I think he had a flexible conscience. Anyway. <laughs> um, and you also mentioned remarriage uh, after divorce uh, or widowhood. Um, this is also yeah. a, a, a. Obviously, the even the modern church has shifted farther away from. Uh, yes. You know, yeah. There were very strict rules about not having a second marriage, even if uh, the first partner had died. Um, there, and there was a very uh, distinct difference between Western understandings of marriage and Eastern understandings of marriage. The Western theologians uh, tended to be converted lawyers who thought in legal terms. And for them, marriage was a contract that dissolved when one of the partners died. Whereas in the East, the theologians were converted poets, and they thought of marriage as a covenant, which survived the death of one of the partners. And so a second marriage was really um, discouraged at best and absolutely forbidden, typically. Sure. Um, and there was really a, a, nearly a civil war the, with Leo VI when he, when he remarried um, uh, several times, in fact. Yeah, that uh, tore the church and, apart. Yes, for quite a, for several decades. Yes, the yes. went on yeah, for quite yeah. a while. Um, okay, so let's talk about some of the different um, sites and institutions in Byzantium that produced rules or prohibitions, and they're all of a very different kind about um, same-sex uh, uh, desire or practices. Um, and you start with the monastic rules the, in Byzantium, the Typica, um, so in monasteries, so these are rules for uh, the membership of the monasteries, and they construe sexual desire um, in, in very different ways than our modern sort of Western regimen of sexual identities. They just see the problem configured, right, in very, very different ways, um, which you know, problematizes the extent to which their attitudes or underlying values can be transferred uh, to a modern context. I think this is what, what, you, what you intend to argue in that chapter. So can you talk a little bit about how sexual desire is and, and sexual temptation or forbidden sexual temptation is seen uh, by many of the monasteries? Yes. Um, the thing that the monasteries are really concerned about is allowing, uh, pe allowing young men who are technically beardless. They may actually be able to, to have some fuzz or, scru or scruffy beard, but they're not, they're, their beards haven't really completely come in. And it's the beardless who are the, considered the ultimate temptation. And you can't expect a grown man to control himself in the presence of one of the, beard, uh, one of the beardless. Uh, a woman is beardless. Um, young boys are beardless. Uh, adolescent boys. Uh, Boys, young men are among the beardless, and you can't expect uh, a bearded man. Uh, eunuchs are beardless. Uh, you can't expect a, a bearded man to be able to control himself. So, if two bearded men were to fa be found sleeping together, they were told uh, you shouldn't do that, and they might even be suspended from communion for a week. But if uh, a bearded man was found having a sexual relationship or a sexual encounter with one of the beardless, um, the, beard, the, the beardless uh, partner was, was to be expelled. The bearded man was to be suspended from communion for quite, uh, for several years, if not expelled himself. And that most of the rules, most of the typica about the monastery were about how old someone could be before they were be before they would be allowed to enter the monastery. Schools were discouraged. Monasteries were discouraged from taking in students or from running schools because that, by definition, put beardless uh, boys in close contact with uh, the bearded monks. Right. This is a very different outlook. Uh, I mean, modern listeners will not 
it, it, it takes a while for a modern reader who's never ex encountered this to sort of fully grasp it. Um, yes. So instead of seeing sexual desire in terms of, you know, same sex or heterosexual desire, it's beardless and bearded. Yes. The beardless category includes women, eunuchs and young men. And bearded, what bearded men do with each other is like a lapse. Right. I mean, it's like a moral failing, like, don't do that again. But it's, right. it's a moral failing, but it's not a big deal. It's, it's, it's the equivalent right. of, of, of having if you, if you ate meat on a meatless day. Right. It's like, well, you shouldn't do that, but it's not the end of the world by a long shot. So can, can you explain why monasteries would see would draw that distinction in particular? Why, why did they why were they so anxious about configuring sexual desire in those terms? Well, I think that. Um, society in general, not just the monasteries, but society saw the beardless as so desirable and so attractive that a bearded man would, of course, want to have, have penetrative sex with any of the beardless that he came in contact with. And it was a mark of real virility to be able to control yourself and not uh, um, have penetrative sex with as many of the beardless as you had access to. Um, that a lot of the exhortations to marriage and, and to the married stress that over and over again to limit um, that a bearded man should limit himself to just his, his wife. Um, and, and sex, sex, penetrative sex was also supposed to be, through, um, it was always an exertion of power that the socially superior partner, which almost always meant a bearded man was supposed to, was supposed to penetrate um, the socially inferior partner, and that was that was comes from classic pagan Roman uh, practice. Um, that uh, it was no shameful thing for a superior man to to penetrate anyone who was his inferior, but it was a shameful thing for uh, to be penetrated by one of his for the roles to be reversed. Uh, Right. So for the benefit of, of our listeners, um, you're I, I just want to give some background here. So you're alluding to, to readings of ancient sexuality um, the, you know, that are associated today with like Foucault and Dover and, and all this, where, right. where the, the, the uh, sexual activity is is placed within this hierarchy of active versus versus passive. And th each side is judged according to different rules and and the active side is more appropriate for the socially superior um and the passive is sort of more shameful de depending on the configurations of status and the context right. um right. but yeah th this this um i mean this you definitely find this in a lot of ancient texts um just an aside i mean i i, I think that even in in classics uh, this has been taken too far. Um, I, I, I was but, never satisfied. Yeah, yeah I mean, I was never satisfied with this way of looking. I mean, it, it turns it. I don't know. This way of looking at at sexuality just reduces it to a power struggle between status groups. Right. And it just dehumanized for, for me at any rate. It just dehumanized the way we talk about the whole thing. As if they're, as if these aren't you know adult adult human beings having relationships in which like love is involved. It, it's just, and and classicists do talk. It's this very mechanical status oriented power play, and it, I just oh it always just kind of left me a little. Ugh. Yes, but that, that that that's still a very powerful thing in the Orthodox Church still today. That because no more than one priest can be ordained at one time, anytime you have more than one priest together at a service to concelebrate, one is always automatically senior to, to the others. And you, everyone, the clergy always line up in ranks of seniority. And it's, when were you ordained? When were you ordained? When were you ordained? When were you ordained? And it's very easy. Everybody has to line up in a certain seniority order. You receive communion in that order. What prayer, how the prayers are divided between different consolibrants is based on the seniority right. of one person's ordination uh, 
date over somebody else's. So there's still a very, um, a, a real consciousness of, of rank that, that doesn't, you know, it's not maybe not necessarily seen as a power struggle, but it's seen as a way of organizing things. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, once you start putting it into rules and hierarchies and especially laws, then this that sort of more human dimension of relationships kind of gets lost. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and we, we should be clear that we are talking about rule books. I mean, canons are rule books. Yes. And how, how, did, how it actually played out is, you know, could be somewhat different. But this is what the written yes. uh, text survives. That's what we have to work with. Yeah. So let's uh, let's switch to the uh, the penitentials, uh, because these have a different approach. So these are guidebooks for how confessors are to take confession from laymen, men and women. Yes. Um, right. And so they have a different approach to sexual activity. Yes, they have. They um, generally suggest um, in the earlier confessional books that um, various heterosexual indiscretions, uh, fornication, adultery, or even remarriage should be subject to quite severe, what sound like quite severe penances for, for several decades. Uh, before the person and that the, the penance has to be fulfilled before the person can be readmitted to communion. Uh, but when two grown men are found to have a sexual relationship, the penance they are given can also sound draconian to modern ears, but it's actually much less significant than the penances assigned to the heterosexual misbehaviors and discretions. So that Clearly, it's the heterosexual uh, activity that is seen as more of a threat and, and more dangerous than the same-sex behavior. And that um, in the more recent, i.e. 17th, 18th century confessional books, there's even the distinction made between their, um, you know, anal sex is like the, the uh, same-sex act par excellence, um, Anal sex between two unrelated men is taken as a fairly minor issue, and then there, I think, there are five uh, different configurations of between men who aren't related, men who are related, men, a man with a woman that he's not related to, a man with a prostitute, and then finally, the worst example of penetrative anal sex is if a man does that with his wife, because it defiles marriage, which is a Right, which is supposed to be a sanctified. procreative, yeah, a sanctified procreative um, activity, um, and if you use it as basically birth control, that that that's the worst example uh, that you can think of. Right, the two and men who do it, who express love for each other, they they get a slap on the wrist. Yes, and this is what I found so fascinating. So in in both of these cases, you have rules that either forbid. Um, same-sex, uh, um, homosexual sex, or at any rate, sort of impose some kind of penance or punishment on it. And if you just stick to the letter of these rules and formulations, you might come out with something that says, well, the Orthodox Church has always rejected or condemned, right, homosexual activity. But if right, you, but then if you do that, you need to also maintain the same rules about heterosexual behavior, and those have been exactly those are completely ignored now. Even though they're still on the books, they are completely ignored, and so you you have to be consistent. Or, for the purposes of understanding what's going on here, I think it's important to understand the moral logic that is producing the rule that you see. So the rule is the end result of a, a thinking process, and that thinking process is based on assumptions that are not at all the same ones that uh, any modern constituency or, or group would have. Right. And, yeah, I mean, I was trying to think of, a, of an example. In, in other words, 
if anyone says the Orthodox tradition has, you know, condemned this kind of activity, and you ask, well, why? And then you start getting into distinctions between the beardless and the bearded, or between gradations of anal sex, with the one with your wife being the worst, um, all of a sudden you realize you're in a different kind of moral universe. Um, and I was thinking... Yeah, I think... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Just the past few days, I was thinking if, if I could come up with a comparable example um, just from modern times to illustrate how the, the, the reasoning matters, right? And so, for example, there are groups today that condemn masturbation, right? That tell their members right. not to masturbate. Right. And, and this can actually tally with what some religious traditions say. But right. if, you, if you ask these groups, why do you condemn <laughs> masturbation? Some of them will say, well, first of all, because it, they believe that, that masturbation somehow enervates or weakens your masculine, vir, your virility, like you're spending right. your masculinity wastefully. And many of these groups are actually white nationalists. <laughs> like they believe right. that, right, that you should know masturbation is bad because you should be using sex to promote the white race or something like this. And right. and if you so if you start delving into the background reasoning, you might oh no that's not what <laughs> that's not what I meant at all, <laughs> right? Uh, yes. So yeah, that's why I find these the, the background so interesting. Um, I, I I think that especially the, in the case where the bearded should are forbidden to have sexual encounters with the beardless, uh, in terms of you know we can easily see that in terms of. Um, abuse of minors now right right that that and, and no no one who's advocating the acceptance of lgbt people in the orthodox church is advocating pedophilia right so right. you know everybody everybody can agree that those rules still have a context and are and a social applicability maybe not you know that we would pursue them more um we would, we, it wouldn't just be a church matter. You know, now it's, it's a matter for the courts. Um, yes. Yeah. But, uh, and it, in a certain sense, it was in Byzantium, too. It's just that the, the age of marriage was around 12 or 13. Yes. You which, would forget that people became a, the whole idea that the age of reason at seven starts with because you begin to be an adult when you're when your adult teeth come in, when you, you lose what's called your milk teeth. And your your permanent teeth start to come in, and so adult you become an adult, you know, as a process between the age of seven and twelve or thirteen, and that you're you're a grown up by the time you're, you know, a ninth grader. <laughs> My daughter has not gotten <laughs> and that you're memo. you're dead by the time you're forty. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, um, it's just a digression here. Um, I I'm wondering. So I I grew up in Greece. Um, oh. So in a in a you know orthodox society, um, some parts right. of it you know more orthodox than others. Um, and I have to say that at least my experience there was that there was not much interest, far less obsession about sexual matters uh, as a as a religious problem in right. in orthodox circles, right? Right. And and there's this really big difference between like the United States and Greece in what sorts of things start to excite you when you find religion. Um, right. And, and in Greece, in Greece, it might be things like, uh, you know, Catholic heresy. <laughs> uh, right. Oh, yes. Or, that. <laughs> yes. Or, or the history of the Ottoman Empire. Right. Yes. And, and yeah, so Greeks who like find religion start worrying about or like obsessing about over how the Orthodox are you know, persecuted or oppressed in the Ottoman and, and like things like that. Right. In the U.S., there's this incredible fixation on, on sexual issues, reproductive rights, you know, things like this. Yeah. Um, so my question, I guess, would be in, in, in your experience of the, the Orthodox Church in the U.S., it, is it is it like more of a is this concern more coming from the American side of it? Well, I think what happened is that, you know, there's a very deeply entrenched don't ask, don't tell attitude in European orthodoxy. And that so long as most of the 
Orthodox intelligentsia were either European or of European background, they had that similar don't ask, don't tell lack of concern. Um, it was in the it was beginning with this in the 70s when they, when a lot and then in, very much in, uh, more so in the 80s and the 90s, it just kept snowballing when evangelical groups in the United States discovered orthodoxy and and became kind of Eastern Rite fundamentalists. And they brought this whole evangelical uh, obsession with uh, with the, the, the whole package of evangelical obsessions with them. And they began to use the fathers as uh, proof texts in, in, out of context, the same way they had previously used the Bible. And they became, right. they, used, they used the, the fathers, as, they had the, an approach to the fathers that was very rigid and very fundamentalistic. Uh, and, and didn't, a lot of those um, pastors were ordained very quickly without giving them time to really absorb a more... Uh, typical traditional orthodox ethos um and i think that was that was the beginning of of the problem in the in the united states yeah in byzantium if i can speak byzantine (laughs) yes um there there really isn't this uh, overriding obsession with policing and monitoring sexual activity and there really isn't that The, the Byzantines, I mean, the Orthodox Byzantines, you know, they, they have their, their values about these sorts of things, but sexual issues uh, only come to the surface of anyone's attention when there's a scandal about them. Um, right, when there's a problem. When they can't the- look away. But normally they yes. just want to look away. It's like, oh, just, yes. just don't. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it's, it's really not... Uh, um, you, you don't find any kind of attempt to uh, create mechanisms like of social engineering that will change what people are doing. So long as they're just respecting the dominant, the dominance of the normative values and not seeking to disrupt the, you know, whatever illusory order the imperial state and the church think is there. Right. It's like, right. We'll, we'll leave you alone. The exception to that <laughs> being certain emperors, right, like Justinian. Of course. Um, yeah. And so this is a this is now a third, a different set of institutions that are producing rules, norms, and and these are the laws. Um, and in fact, right. the laws of the state are far more draconian. Yes. Than those of the church. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about those? Well, yes. The civil law is is very. Um... You know, it, it cites um, same-sex uh, behavior as capital crime that uh, people should be executed for it, and specifically burnt, uh, which is uh, the four standard Roman then Byzantine methods of execution was the worst uh, because it completely destroyed the body. There, there, it left no relics. Uh, that the it was a statement that the person who was executed by fire was so dangerous to society that not even his corpse could be allowed to uh, contaminate society or contaminate the world, that it could be a, a rallying point for people with similar thoughts, or it could also just be a focus for the spread of seditious ideas. Um, so even as you, but even as you have these terrible laws on the books, there's no record that, that they were actually implemented. They, were, they could be held as a threat. And what we know that Justinian and Theodora did is that they held this threat of execution over people's head in order to extract um, money, that, the, that, they, that they, would, they were much happier uh, extorting money from people accused of having same-sex relationships than they were in actual, in actually executing them. Um, so occasionally there was someone executed almost by accident during an inter- a torturous interrogation session. Uh, but that was meant to get in th- those interrogation sessions under torture were to get confessions that could then be used to uh, demand payments from the, the victims to, to fund uh, 
the imperial building campaigns or to restock the imperial coffers for the wars or whatever particular project uh, Theodore and Justinian uh, were particularly interested in at that particular point. Justinian was seemed to be more interested in the money for his projects, and Theodora was more interested in uh, 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 humiliating people who uh, she thought had had dissed her, had been disrespectful to her. Yeah, I mean Justinian, he may very well have been a zealot too. I mean, and so. I, I mean, in, in one of his laws, he talks about how homosexual activity causes earthquakes. Yes. Yeah. And then, of course, people were always people were looking for causes to explain natural disasters, that the world was not an inert, static place. It was the world was a living, dynamic entity that interacted with the people who lived on it. And, that yeah, they misbehavior must be the cause. natural disasters had to be the result of human misbehavior so yeah there's a i remember a few years ago i i found a, a a video clip of a politician i think it was in new zealand who was making the same argument just a few years ago that uh, oh yeah pat robertson and those people have done it <laughs> several times <laughs> yeah um and yet even in the case of civil law so i mean justinian is justinian and and he did he punished people for a whole bunch of things. Uh, um, I think even playing dice for him was a. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't remember the penalty right now, um, but uh, uh, and and like Leo the Third in the eighth century, who who published the the Eclogi, the, the Ecloga, the Law Code, and right. and I, there I think also homosexual activity is punished by death. But I mean that his approach, I think, is informed by a very kind of Old Testament kind of inspiration. I mean, to to his laws and his whole imperial persona. Um, right. If you go back to like Theodosius the first, who you mentioned in your book, I think there the death penalty is applied to the to the passive partner who like willingly and enthusiastically participates in it. Right. Which, again, is this? It's this halfway. It, you know, between the classical Roman status conceptions of uh, yes. uh, within the act and Justinian's sort of wholesale prohibition later on. Right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, well, fortunately, in, I mean, the modern Orthodox context, we we don't have to deal with the Roman civil law. <laughs> and, um, at no, it's uh, Russian thugs. <laughs> those are those are the the new, um, the new tools of uh, uh, dealing out the death penalty. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times the Ru- Russian right. thugs target uh, right, right. gay men and um, beat them uh, to death. Yes. Or... Yes. Um, so I wanted to move on to the Adelfopia, uh, the the brother making ritual um, that you talk about, yes. but. But but first, you you have a, a chapter on John Chrysostom. Um, yes. C- could you briefly say why you devote a whole chapter to him? Well, Chrysostom is so he's so definitive. He is like the Orthodox father. He is he he uses his liturgy almost every Sunday. His sermons are quoted um, all the time. He he is the almost the the. If you have to pick one defining figure of orthodoxy, um, it's often John Chrysostom. And um, his his uh, sermon number four on Romans 1 is what's often quoted uh, by people who are uh, trying to discourage or outlaw homosexuality and gay people from the Orthodox Church, uh, because he says such horrendous things about um LGBT folk and and same-sex behavior in this uh, sermon. But the fact that he's the only one who says these things, whenever anybody else, Basil the Great, any of the other big famous fathers, preach about Romans 1 or about the the incident of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis, um, they don't they don't bring up same-sex behavior at all. And even when Chrysostom talks about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis, he talks about their lack of hospitality, not the right. in, in, in implication of, of same-sex behavior and, and, and same-sex rape 
that he focuses on in Romans one, and um, we know that his his in his um, little tract about uh, education, where he he rec- tells parents how they should raise their sons and what kind of education they should give them, he says absolutely you should not give your kids a classical Greek education. Because one, they will learn myths as if they were true, and two, they will be fucked. Because it was just a part of standard Greek pedagogy that the the tutor would have a sexual relationship with the student. And we know that his mother scrimped and saved to give him a classical Greek education, and that his tutor actually later on faced several accusations of what we would now call abuse and molestation uh, with other students. And Chrysostom's infamous stomach problems um, could, you know, one explanation for his stomach problems is that those are also seen among adult survivors of molestation. So it seems fairly clear that he was probably molested by his tutor, and that really colored his... um, attitude toward this behavior yeah unfortunately we we just have very little evidence about that um and even attitudes toward it uh from most of the byzantine period um i mean i i can imagine chrysostom easily coming up with i mean being able to craft this over the top rhetoric and and this are this homily is over the top i mean it's yeah. worse than murder and and so forth right um, yes. And, and he, he has a tendency to do this sometimes. Uh, th- th- there's another f- famous set of homilies that he delivered um, to warn Christians against having anything to do with Jewish neighbors in their, you know, not mixing right. it up with Jews at all. And those don't are Jewish doctors. Yes. Don't, don't go to Jewish doctors. It's like the hard. There's so, I mean, those are those are embarrassing um, uh, today. But. You know, I, I, I think it's also possible that that his rhetoric sometimes got away uh, from from him. Um, I mean, I, so I don't know if I would yeah. read biographical, you know, information into that. But well, it's a, it's a, it's one possible. It's certainly a possible. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. In his, in his makeup. Oh, the childhood of all these people is unknown to us. Um, yeah, very, very. Very rarely do we know much about what their childhoods were like. Yeah, like one of the more interesting, I mean, except for Augustine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, even Jerome, I think Jerome, in some places, he casually mentions, you know, he was a womanizer in his youth. Right. Yeah. Oh, by the way. Oh, yeah, by the way. Okay. All right, whatever. Okay. (laughs) So let's turn to Adelphopia. This is a... um, a right for uh, so spiritual for making spiritual brothers. So two men would be recognized as spiritually kin, as equivalent to brothers. Um, so how did the Byzantines use and understand this? Um, and and um, so how do you how do you bring it back into this conversation? Because I get the sense that you want to suggest this as a kind of template that the church can use in order to recognize same-sex unions. Right. Uh, and when brotherhood, brother making service started, the, the relationship between the two men, um, I think, has been pretty clearly shown by Claudia Rapp to have been a monastic practice, that the two men would be engaged in, like Bible study partners, prayer partners. And they would look in the in the wilderness. They would look out for each other, you know, that they if they were semi hermits living out in the wilderness, that they would live sure. together at, for mutual protection and to uh, one would cook you know and just to organize their monastic life when lay people non-monastic men started to use this service it was seems to have been uh, part of the whole byzantine uh, process of networking to establish relationships for mutual business and dynastic um convenience and, and um, uh, m- mutual support in, in those kind of ways. Uh, and, but then we also get uh, little hints that it was also used by, by men 
to sanctify uh, apparently a sexual relationship. <clears throat> and we know that Patriarch Athanasius I of Constantinople in the like, 12 or 1300s uh, complained that it was used that way. And no one seemed to take his complaints very seriously. Well, he complained um, a lot. <laughs> he complained a lot. He complained about the emperor not going to church enough on Good Friday. He yes. complained about people not fasting during Lent. He complained about the theaters being open. He com but this was one thing out of many that he complained about. Um, so it seems to have been used um, to as a... And, and again, you know, they would not have thought of this as either or. You could have a, a brotherhood relationship that had been sanctified with this service with a man that you had a sexual relationship with while you also have had been married you know were married to a woman and had children but you were it was very unusual to expect that your primary emotional relationship would not be with a man though yeah that, sure you, your your wife was not meant to be your your, your focus equal your, your equal or your a companion right or partner in any way you, your your real friend was supposed to be another man and so you might have this um, that could easily spill over into sex or it might not. But you could have this brotherhood relationship, brotherhood service to sanctify that relationship. Um, my suggestion now is that since the church already has uh, several marriage services, the service for a first marriage and the service for a second or a third marriage, um, and when the priest does uh, a wedding, he doesn't say on the license which service he used. He just says he did the service. And, and the church still really frowns on second and third marriages. There's a, there's a whole process the, the parish priest has to go through to get permission from the bishop to do a, a second or a third marriage for a parishioner. Um, and it can, it can I, I, I had instances where it was fairly easy, and I've had instances where it was very, very difficult. Um, and that even the couple had to eventually go to um, another jurisdiction to find a bishop that would give permission for their, for their marriage. Right. Um, so if the church were to recognize same-sex relationships with a service they could easily use this the brother making service and then just not you know it wouldn't be a question on the marriage license they would just you know i did the service and the priest would sign it uh, and maybe in the, the parish record the church record books there might be an indication of which service was used to sanctify which relationship um on what day but uh, we, we have the liturgical equipment ready to go and that the service for a brother, the, the brotherhood service is very similar, much more similar structurally to the service for a second or a third marriage than it is to the service for a first marriage. So it's almost like the church already has this category of sexually suspicious relationships that on the one hand, we absolutely condemn, but they happen. So here's a service to bless them. Right. You, you call this in the book a blessing begrudgingly bestowed. Right. Yeah, because, you know, the, the, the Orthodox Church is much more comfortable with pastoral gray areas than the Western Church is with everything has to be black and white. Um, the Orthodox don't pretend, you know, when it comes to a second or third marriage, they, they, they don't have the whole annulment process. You don't have to pretend that the first marriage didn't, didn't exist. happen. Right. Um, you have to say it died. And it has a, the Orthodox and the, the Byzantines and, and now the Orthodox have a whole list of reasons why a marriage might die, that why a relation, why separation would be expected. Uh, if one of the part, you know, if your partner puts out a contract <laughs> and hires a, a murder, <laughs> hires, your, hires out your, your murder, that's a good reason for a divorce. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, so. the Byzantine laws contain lists. They list all of the, the they grounds. Love lists. Yes, and I, in a certain way, they're they're frightening and sad. But in other sense, they're pretty funny uh, because they're different for men and women. Yes. Right. So, like, insanity is only good for I can't remember which one, but like, if I, I don't know, if your husband is insane, you can divorce him. But if your wife is insane, no. Like, there's right. one about tomb robbing. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah, and 
if, if you're, your woman wouldn't be a tomb robber, but if your husband is a tomb robber, then... And, yeah, I, th- I don't... I, now I don't remember where I read this, but there's one where a woman can ask for divorce if her husband has a sexual affair with another woman and forces the wife to watch. Yes. Like, it's a very specific situation. You, you could hear the voice of experience that this, no one would come up with such a complicated solution unless they had, there had actually been a situation like that. Right, this happened. Okay, um, so, so you're proposing, um, but by the way, just so our listeners can, can um, have a kind of mental image here. So we are talking about a rite in which a priest is involved that blesses the, the spiritual relationship between two men. Right. That results in them being treated by the church as if they were brothers. Correct. Right. But by the way, this it does result in in marriage prohibitions. In other words, then, for example, their sisters can't marry each other. Right. Like. Right. They could be married to a woman, but right. Right, but it creates a, it's a, it's a, it creates a set of spiritual incest categories. The same right. Way right. Right. Yeah. So, like American listeners might, or modern listeners, I guess, generally would probably only know of this kind of bond of spiritual brotherhood from movies where men slash their wrists and shake hands and like, you're my brother now, you know, this kind of more the the barbaric, barbarian society kind of ritual brotherhood. And, um, pirates. you know, actually, I think this, you know, the expression, um, blood is thicker than water. Yeah. Which is normally taken to mean that biological relationships blood like right yeah it trumps other things yeah like friendship but i've read that it actually meant exactly the opposite it's uh. the it's the blood of friendship that is thicker than the water of the womb that makes a lot of sense yeah we've I just kind of that. turned it around um okay so have has this idea gotten any traction by the way i mean the book has only been out for a few years but any takers well there's been a lot of very enthusiastic academic reviews and thunderous silence from the church i had been prepared for i had been prepared for thunderous denunciations um but the church doesn't want to acknowledge that it exists and i had been warned by a rabbi who wrote a similar book for orthodox judaism that that could easily happen um that the institution doesn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole so I always figured that when the bishops are ready to seriously discuss these issues, they need to know what's actually happened, and they have to have a language and an understanding of what the practice actually has been in the past. Um, but so far, I understand it's been footnoted in a lot of places. It's been the subject. Uh, it's come up in several Orthodox conferences uh, about uh, sexual diversity in the Orthodox Church, but there's been no official... Um, action you know yeah well it'll take time and by the way thunderous silence um has its has its virtues for one thing it means that look if if it were easy to respond to the book right right then they would (laughs) yes then they would have so this is the this is let's just say this is a gestation period and they're kind of Anyway, uh, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I, I... They're taking it in. Well, clearly, you know, here we are. We're talking. So clearly the, you know, the, the, the word is getting out. And uh, presumably at some point it might, uh, it might be difficult to continue to be silent. Yes, that would be interesting to see what happens at that point. Yeah. Um, so I at, I, at the end of the discussions of, uh, of the... Uh, uh, episodes. I usually ask my guests to recommend two good books that they've read um, that they would recommend to our listeners. They don't have to be on this topic. Uh, I have two series I would like to recommend. One is The Chronicles of Vedessos by Harry Turtledove. Right. Uh, it's it's a, fa- a quartet, a fantasy a quartet uh, where uh, Roman soldiers are, are magically... Uh, transported to an alternate universe where it's clearly modeled on Byzantium. Oh, yes. Uh, it, it's really, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's really, 
I enjoyed it a great deal. Um, and the other series is the the Laundry Files by Charles Strauss, Strauss, S T R O S S. That's it's the M I C the 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 Laundry uh, is the nickname for the basically the M I six supernatural uh, bureau of Great Britain. Uh, it it takes some of the Lovecraftian uh, <laughs> ideas that any any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, and so all all the all the magic and the supernatural uh, in the laundry files are based on computer programs, right? And and technology, and they he does a he does a, an amazing job of weaving in Celtic mythology and and uh, explaining uh, incidents in Celtic prehistory and Celtic Celtic folk tales as uh, real events that uh, have have to do with. Uh, what we now think of as technology, both technology and magic. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Turtle Dove. Um, yeah, he sent me those books. Um, oh yeah, the Chronicles of Odysseus. Yes, uh, he was a Byzantinist, you know. Yes, he was. Yeah, and he, he, knew, uh, he knew whereof he spoke. Oh yes, yes. I think one of his earliest books was like one of he, you know he does a lot of alternative what if history. Yes, and it was what if Byzantium had survived to today. <laughs> Right, I think Mohammed had was a bishop in that case. Yes, that case. yes, <laughs> yes. That's a that's it would, a, would have been a very interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Stephen, uh, thank you very much for your time. This was a true pleasure. Well, thank you. Likewise, and I wish you the very best in your future endeavors. And I will be keeping my ear to the ground to see how when the discussion starts, you know, and make sure that we put your book into it. Well, thank you very much. Let me know what you hear. And I hope that the rest of your semester goes well and that, uh, you, that you, you have a, a good break uh, between terms. Yeah, I'm up. looking forward to that. All right, Stephen, take care. You too.